0: the threat of torture or even death was, uh, you know, presented to us and we were asked to choose uh, Jesus or to uh, somehow uh, recant and follow the political agenda of whomever was uh, doing the persecuting. You know, and those kind of thoughts probably have run through your mind. And Jesus is saying to his disciples here, The real goal is not to worry about that. It's to focus on following me. It's to keep your eyes on me. If that time comes in your life, the Holy Spirit will empower you and enable you in that moment to say and do what you need to say and do. Um, A lot of times, not just in that arena, but in, in many others, we try to borrow tomorrow's grace Ahead of time because we're crossing bridges before we've arrived at them. And uh, that leads us into a lot of anxiety because you don't have grace today for what you're not facing today. Um, you have grace in the moment of your need. And that's the, the point that Jesus is making is that the Holy Spirit will equip you and enable you to face whatever it is you need to face. He's faithful that way. And so it doesn't matter whether it's persecution or some other threat. Uh, When you arrive at the moment of need, the Holy Spirit will be there to meet it. And we need to uh, kind of tuck that in our mind somewhere and stop trying to live uh, before we get there uh, into the moment. Because um, there's not a lot of help for that. The situation isn't exactly real yet. Well, in the midst of this teaching, there's a fellow in the crowd that kind of interrupts uh, Jesus' teaching. And uh, he says, um, Rabbi or master, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now... To be sure, this guy interrupted Jesus. There's no question about that. But it was not quite as rude as it might seem. Maybe the timing was a little poor. But uh, in Jewish culture, uh, family law and the laws of inheritance were governed by the law of Moses. And if a family didn't understand how the law was to be applied, it was rather common for them to go to the local rabbi and appeal for interpretation and ask the rabbi to... Uh, help them understand and apply the law in their situation. So this fellow was not acting out of the cultural character, although the timing was a little poor. He was acting in a way that he kind of expected Jesus, the, the great rabbi, you know, to uh, give some insight here. The only problem was he'd already made up his mind how he wanted things to turn out. You notice he says, Tell my brother <laughs> to, to uh, divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus made it clear that his mission was not to be a judge in family law and inheritance, <laughs> that he wasn't going to get into that argument. He said, Man, who made me an arbitrator uh, over you and, and in your family? That's not my purpose. However, the question prompted Jesus to move into an arena of talking about economics, uh, launching on the concept of greed. And so he says, Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And on the heels of that, Jesus begins to teach on what I have called kingdom economics, which tells us how we ought to think about wealth, resources, and finances. And he gives three principles in this passage, that this long passage that come out. And I want to just summarize those principles for you this morning, because... They're important points for us to see in a whole picture. And, and rather than getting focused in microscopically on the little details, because we could go off on many, many different trails throughout these verses, but to rather see the main picture that Jesus is communicating to His disciples. Three principles that come out of this sidetrack, this interruption. The first is, do not set your heart on worldly wealth and possessions. In the end, you will be sad and empty, no matter what you accumulate. Secondly, pointless worry and the Father's care. We are secure in His love. And finally, make eternal investments which will pay dividends forever and bring lasting joy, now and eternally. Jesus, I'm going to come back to the greed thing in a moment, but Jesus introduces the topic by telling a story. It could be a story, that uh, something that he observed, or it could be a, a story that he put together for illustration. He doesn't tell us that this was... A real event, but he says this is kind of uh, a point that I want to illustrate with this with this tale. A farmer businessman has a bumper crop, and when he considers the the huge vastness of his harvest, he looks at his barns and silos or whatever they used in those days, and he says... Wow, I don't have enough storage space for all of my grain. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down the barns that I have, and I'll build bigger barns and bigger spaces because I've got enough here to last me for years to come. And I can kick back and take it easy and rest and have fun and live as I please. Because I have no worries now. And so I'm going to tear these down and build the bigger ones and store up all of this wealth that I have accumulated. And Jesus says that evening, God comes to him and says, You fool. Tonight, your soul is required of you. And then, what will become of all the wealth that you have accumulated. And so he ends that section by saying, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now there's a couple of things that stand out about this story that I think are interesting, and and we need to take these into account because they underscore the point that Jesus is making. First of all, notice that this guy is a farmer, That's his business. And he did not anticipate the harvest that he's about to get. In other words, he had an unexpected yield that went beyond his wildest imagination. And he found himself ill-equipped to manage it. And so he said, I've got to build a bigger storage space. So, here is something that he clearly did not expect. You know, I don't know a lot about farming, but I do know something about farming. And one of the things that I know that every farmer will attest to is that there are certain things they can do to produce a good harvest. They can buy the right kind of seed They can sow it properly, they can prepare the field properly, they can fertilize properly, they can use pesticide or genetically engineered seed or whatever to be resilient to to insects. But at the end of the day, they cannot control the weather, the temperature, or the rainfall. They can get too much rain and the crops can be drowned out. They can get it not enough and they'll never mature. It can be a a long winter that goes well into the planting time and there's not enough time for the growth to occur before the fall harvest. And vice versa, things can change around on them. And there are a number of things that they have absolutely no control over. It is completely out of their hands no matter what they do. And so, to have a bumper crop like this obviously took this guy by surprise. It was beyond what he anticipated. It was more than he could reasonably expect. And yet, rather than turning to God in gratitude for this provision, he turns to himself and says, wow, you have really hit the jackpot. You need to build bigger barns. You can take a vacation you can go to Vegas. You can go on some cruises. Man, you've got it made. You don't have anything to worry about for years to come. Notice the pronouns as you read the passage. Look beginning uh in verse uh, 17 and he began reasoning to himself saying What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he says, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, You fool. When we go back and study the biblical definition of a fool. A fool is a person who either denies God, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Or a person who acts as if God didn't matter at all. And so, a foolish person is one who behaves beyond the context of God, as if he were not there, or denies his existence. And when you read the story of this man, as Jesus tells it, the only person he's thinking about in the story is himself. And he never once acknowledges God. He never sees the blessing and the bounty that he has received as being something beyond his ability and coming from a gracious hand that has blessed him abundantly. He views it as a windfall to consume on himself. Uh, There are all kinds of trails you could take in in analyzing the the business principles that are here. And they go in many directions, both good and bad. But I think Jesus is simply boiling this down to the point that here is a man who is entirely self-centered. And his focus is on the accumulation of possessions for himself and what he can do with them. And God calls him a fool. And he says, you're going to have to give an answer this very night. Your soul is required. You're going to stand in my presence. You're going to answer for your life. And Jesus, in essence, says, now who will own what you have prepared? Who is going to inherit this? It's not going to do you any good whatsoever. How many people have you known in your lifetime, good or not so good, that in the prime of life, in the peak of career, and in the midst of all kinds of uh, wonderful things, suddenly drop dead of a heart attack? Suddenly it all comes to an end. Suddenly their life takes a turn that they never anticipated. And all of a sudden they've come to the end long before they expected to. And they have to answer. It's time to give an account. And Jesus says, this man was a fool because he put all of his investment in himself and when he had a windfall, all he could think about was how he could enjoy that money and and reap that harvest for His own benefit. So, going back to where Jesus began, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. The point that Jesus is making here is that, If you live for the accumulation of wealth, if that's your goal, to to bring security, to, to buy happiness, to accumulate stuff, when you come to the end, you're going to be really sad and lonely and empty. You're going to look back on a life that has essentially been wasted And you're not going to be ready to meet God. And that is a person who has lived their lives like a fool. On the other hand, Jesus says, your father cares about you. Look at verse 22. And he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, for this reason, what reason? This guy, in the prime of life, in the midst of windfall, dies. Totally uncontrollable, unexpected. He's reached the end. I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor your body as to what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about the other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, Not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass that is in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? You men of little faith. And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. And do not keep worrying for all these things... The nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. Seek first His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. You know, everything begins at the beginning. Genesis. I want to take you back again. I want to remind you how we started out. God created a perfect paradise, a garden that was lush and plentiful, uh, full of every possible thing that Adam and Eve could want, all the fruits and vegetables they could consume. Um, Had some oranges last night. They were great. I mean, this is about the time of year when the oranges are coming in, and man, they were just fantastic. And, and You know, Adam and Eve had that kind of stuff all the time. They lived in a perfectly moderate climate that didn't even require clothes. They were perfectly safe. They were perfectly warm, not too hot, not too cold. They had everything provided for them and they were in relationship with each other and with God perfect paradise environment everything they needed sin entered the picture all of a sudden the ground is cursed because of it and Adam and Eve have to begin to work and uh, try to eke out their living from the soil that's not being very responsive to them and They need to be covered, first of all because of their shame and then eventually because of climate change. And Things begin to just go off the wire and pretty soon their offspring are out building cities and building uh, kingdoms to themselves and tribal clans and seeking political power. The story is not very old before human beings are acting just like they do today. Uh, it's a pretty quick uh, digression into the abyss of sin. And life has lost its focus. Jesus is calling us back to something here. He's telling us that our lives do not consist of the abundance of possessions, but rather our lives consists, most importantly, of relationship. God calls us back into relationship with Himself. He calls us back into fellowship. He calls us into relationship with one another. Depending on how those relationships are structured, marriage, a family unit, friendships, the church, the body of Christ, there are different parameters described around them, but We are called to love all people. We are called to be relational beings. We are called to manifest the love of God because of our walk and our fellowship with Him. The most important thing in life is not what we own. It's how we value and interact with God and with other people. And how we communicate that love and and how we cherish one another whom God values highly. This wealthy farmer is only thinking about himself. And frankly, that's the essence of sin. Most people are only thinking about themselves. But Jesus is calling us back to a relationship. And in that... He is telling us, I don't want you to be worried as kingdom people about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. Notice how he boils it down to the barest essentials. Food is pretty important. Wouldn't you agree? If you've ever studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know that eating and drinking is right up there at the top and and having clothes is kind of right after it there are essentials that we feel we need. It's not the end of the list. It's the beginning of the list. But He begins at the most fundamental need. You have to have something to eat and you have to have something to wear. And God knows that. He calls their attention to ravens whom God feeds. He calls their attention to lilies whom God clothes. And He says, look, You are so much more valuable than those. God has a hierarchy. He doesn't put human beings on par with the whales or the owls in the Northwest. He has a hierarchy. We are numero uno in His kingdom. We're the number one people. He loves us. We're more valuable than anything else on the planet. God is invested in us and He knows our need. Jesus is trying to point out to His disciples what should be obvious. That He is a loving Father, an all-wise God who has full awareness of everything we need, and He will care for us. And so He says, twice, don't worry. Don't worry. Now, I will be the first to admit that that's not an easy commandment, an easy teaching to, to obey. Um, I know people who obsess over finances. They worry about them day in and day out. I'm not one of those. It, it Maybe I should sometimes be a little more concerned than I am. But, but I, I don't lay awake at night wondering how I'm going to pay bills. That's, that's not one of my issues. But I do worry about my kids. And I worry about other things that trouble me. And I'll tell you, sometimes that can become obsessive. And you know what the reality is? There's not one thing I can do about it. I can't I can't control what my grown sons do. They do whatever they want to do. <laughs> They've been doing that long before they were grown, as a matter of fact. And I have no control over that. I certainly can't control what might happen to them beyond their own choices. How I many of you have plans for after the service this morning? You know what you're going to do? You got an idea? You're going to get some lunch? You're going home? You're going to make dinner? You you know, are you going to go visit some folks? I know some of us have some meetings this afternoon. You've kind of got an agenda in your mind? Did you know that could change before you get to the intersection? Twenty years of working with rescue and responding to 911 calls, one thing I became very much acquainted with, No one expected to dial 911 until the moment they did. And no one imagined what happened to them happening before it happened. But in the blink of an eye, their life was utterly upended. It might have been as inconvenient as a trip to the hospital only to be discharged a few hours later with no serious problems. Or it may have been an unsuccessful resuscitation, and their soul was required of them. But none of them saw it coming. It just took them totally by surprise. Jesus is trying to point out the obvious to us. And in case this has not occurred to you philosophically at some deep level, you don't have control over very much. You think you can control your own actions, and to a certain extent you can. But there are always forces acting upon you that you have no control over. And you certainly can't control anyone else's actions. If you think you can, you really are, can I say stupid? Is that okay? You're you're stupid. Because you're going to waste a lot of energy trying to get other people to do what you want, and it's not going to work. You cannot make people do what you want them to do. We don't have a lot of control. Jesus is trying to say, you can't even add one hour to your life. Think of how many days you've already lived, how many hours you've already lived. You don't have to do the math right now, you can do it when you get home. But think about it. You can't add an hour. Psalm 139 says, Lord, you know the number of my days when there was, before there was even one of them. And I don't care how you analyze it, the reality is there will come a moment when our days are done and we're going to meet Him. And there's not one thing we can do To change that. So Jesus is bringing this down home to the very nitty-gritty and saying, there's nothing you can do about so many things in life. Don't waste your time worrying over them. Now, I admit, as as I told you, I I have things that trouble me. And And there's a scripture remedy for it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which goes beyond comprehension, because sometimes it's unreasonable not to be anxious. You know, a normal person would be worried sick. But the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, 7, 8, along in there. And so, Jesus says to His disciples, don't waste your time worrying. Paul says, take your concerns to God. And every time they come back, just go back to God. Transfer all of that care and worry and burden to Him because He is the One who will give you peace. And don't worry about your future because God knows what you need. I know people that have different kinds of uh, significant things in their life. That Some people want that high-paying job because they want a lot of free cash. Some people want that secure retirement because... Uh, they want to know that when, when they get to even maybe 50-55 or whatever, they're, they want to be done and they want to kick back and take their easy and eat and drink and, and be merry and enjoy their lives. Where do you ever find vacation, by the way, for a child of God or, or, or retirement for a child of God? You know, it's... we're always His people. Work for the day is coming when man's work is done. I'm not saying you shouldn't rest. There's a whole ton of stuff in the Scriptures on rest. But this concept that, well, I need to be able to live in the lap of luxury when my working years are done. So I've got to, I've got to save for that. I know people that they worry about that. That's their biggest concern. And the funny thing is, the more they've got, the more they worry. That's my observation. People that have a lot of money in their retirement account are really worried. They watch the stock market. They check the economy. They're always concerned about how everything's performing. They're just worried about the interest rates. They're constantly sitting on the edge of their seats, and with good reason. I remember when the stock market crashed over the um, Internet stuff some years back. I was on duty at the firehouse one morning, and one of the full-time paramedic firefighters from another department who worked part-time in our department came in, and he was just shaking his head, and he said, I lost $150,000. He said, I'm going to have to work another 10 years. He was just despondent. It's like, well, I didn't say that to him. I tried to empathize with him, but it's like, well... That's what you can expect. Yeah, over time, you can maybe count on a 10% increase over a few decades, but you could lose it all. You say, hey, I've, I've got my money in, in banks that have uh, FDIC insurance. I'm secure. Well, that's fine if only one of them fails. But if a few hundred or a thousand fail across the nation... Not even Uncle Sam's going to be able to pay that bill. There is going to come a day. There is going to come a day when the, the ground is leveled and the playing fields are wiped clean. And somebody's going to appear on the scene and say, if you don't take this mark, your money's worthless. You have nothing. You can't eat. You can't buy. You can't sell. You have nothing. And if you show up with anything, we'll just shoot you. Oh, I got my gold stashed away. Oh, I got my cash stashed away. Well, you just show up with it because now the cash is red instead of green. And you show up with green stuff, we just shoot you. Jesus is trying to make the point. You can't predict the future. Worrying over it is a waste of time. But you have a Father that cares for you no matter what. And He knows your need and He's willing to provide. So, point number one, don't set your heart on worldly wealth. It will leave you empty. Don't spend your time worrying over the future. Put your trust and faith in the God who loves you. And finally, he says, Invest in eternal things which will pay dividends forever and bring lasting joy now and eternally. Look at verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I want to quickly say that there was only one person in all the New Testament that Jesus said, Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. That person was a wealthy young man who went to Jesus with a question. What must I do to have eternal life? The point Jesus was making is you have to put me first. You can't have idols in your life. The problem was that young man's idol was his money. And so in order to separate him from his idol and allow him to focus on God, Jesus said to him, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you need to come follow me. And we know how that story ended. He he couldn't bring himself to do it. It was asking too much. He walked away sorrowfully. And by the way, without eternal life. Because he would not make the conversion. <laughs> he wouldn't make the switch. So when Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the poor, he, he's not saying carte blanche to every single believer Sell everything you have and give it all away. And, and then come follow me. For one thing, that violates teaching of other scriptures that take it in the whole context. The scripture encourages us about being wise and being good stewards and planning for the future. So there are things in scripture that encourage us in that direction. What Jesus is saying is you need to be more relationally oriented than materially oriented. You need to be more invested in people than you are in things. You don't need to accumulate stuff for yourself As much as you need to be considering the investment you make in the lives of other people, in the expansion of the kingdom, in the work of mission, in in the care of the truly poor and genuinely impoverished, you need to be concerned about those kinds of things that your father's concerned about. And so... In that respect, we are not to be those who are constantly grasping for things, but those who are recognizing that we are at best stewards, not owners. And it belongs to God. And then to realize that there is actually a way to take it with you. If you invest your resources... In the kingdom, in the work of God, in other people, Jesus says, that will be there to meet you. You remember the judgment seat of Christ? We mentioned that last week or so. For you will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And whether you have a, 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 you know, lived a life of hay, wood, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones, your life will be evaluated I told you we're not going to face our sins. We're not. They're under the blood. But we are going to face our produce. What constructive things have our lives accomplished in the power of the Holy Spirit? And if we've been living for self, it's going to evaporate. But if we have been living for God with a kingdom focus and His mission at the, at the center of our heart, then when the evaluation comes, there will be gold and silver and precious stones. Not the the earthly kind, but the the heavenly treasure that will endure eternally. Jesus says you can invest your resources in a way that your money belts won't wear out and thieves won't break in and steal and they won't uh, depreciate or disintegrate. You can invest yourself in the kingdom, and it will make a difference. For he says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Paul warns us in in Timothy that the love of money is a root of all the evils. The love of money. And people who pursue wealth and pursue material possessions... That's where their heart lies. That tells you something about their inner self and their priority structure. They're not focused on God. But people that are focused on God have a different orientation. Let me give you some things to consider in in practical translation of this. Because I've told you that Jesus is not necessarily saying that every one of you should go sell everything you own and give it all away and sell your house and sell your car and, and divest yourself of every single thing you own, keep one set of clothes and a winter coat maybe, and then what? Then we're all impoverished. Who's going to take care of us? I mean, seriously. How does that work? You know, we have to turn to the world. I mean, how does that work? Jesus is not saying that. But let's bring it down to something a little more practical. Suppose when you look at your budget and you analyze your income, you've heard it said uh, you should wisely save 10% of everything you earn. They tell everybody that. You know, it's the first thing you learn in personal finance. Put away 10% for a rainy day. But suppose you look at your budget and you say... I can barely stretch my paycheck to cover my necessary bills. And I'm not even sure I can save 10%. And we haven't talked about the kingdom yet. What is the scripture saying here? The scripture, what Jesus is saying is, Invest the difference in the kingdom. Now, I'm not going to argue right at this moment, I may some other time, but not this morning, about the 10%. I think that's a first fruit gift, not, a, not an end result after you've finished your budget. But nonetheless, if the, if the question is, do I save 10% or do I give 10% to the work of God, which should I do? Jesus is very plain here. Invest 10% in the kingdom and trust God with the unexpected. It's very simple. God knows your need. He will care for you. You put Him first and trust Him with your future. Let's say you get that windfall Somebody, distant relative died and you didn't even hardly know they were there. And lo and behold, you're in the will and you're left a million dollars. Is it yours? Not if you're a child of God. It's His. Everything you have is His. You don't own it. You're a steward. The first question you have to ask is, Lord... What do you want me to do with this? What are your plans? You have placed this in the hands of your child for your purposes. What do you want me to do? God may give you freedom to utilize some of it. I suspect he's going to have something to say about investment and where it goes. A number of years ago, and I've shared this with some of you before, I had the privilege of meeting Art DeMoss. Art started out in life as a door-to-door blanket salesman. Well, he started out in life as a baby, but when he got a little older, he was a door-to-door blanket salesman, not making an awful lot of money, but uh, he and his wife uh, came up with the idea after he got into selling insurance that they could pre-qualify an awful lot of people through direct mail. Because you can almost always write people that have a good health history. And so he came up with the idea that through direct mail, they could pre-qualify a ton of people and sell them policies, the ones that were golden, you know, they could sell policies to without ever going door to door and making appointments and spending hours and hours and hours trying to sell insurance. And... As a consequence of the idea, he became a multimillionaire. But he wrote a little book, a booklet uh, later in his life called God's Secret for Success, in which he talked about his habit of spending the first hour of every day with God in his word and in prayer, and how these ideas had come from God. And when I met him, he lived in a very nice home in the... Uh, outskirts of Philadelphia and he drove a Maserati and (laughs) he had a nice guest house that we were staying in and all those kinds of things. But Art DeMoss was a man who, when he began to grow in wealth, asked God what he wanted to do with that money. And he felt burdened of the Lord to use it, among many other things. I mean, he gave millions away to other causes. But he felt led of God to use that money to begin to reach the people of society that were out of touch to the common person, the corporate presidents in America and upper-level executives. He started a foundation called Executive Ministries, which was located on his property there at his home. And and he invested himself in seeking to win to Christ key leaders in American business because he was uniquely positioned to reach those people at a level that they could relate to him. And the whole family was like that. And, and uh, you know, some of you read... Uh, uh, the book, so oh, what's her name, it just went out of my brain. Nancy, Nancy DeMoss. I was thinking that was his wife, but that's a daughter. He's got a daughter too. The whole family has picked up the heritage of that and carry on the tradition. The point Jesus is making is the focus in our lives cannot be what we own or what we want to get, or building security that makes us independent. The focus in life is the kingdom of God, and we are stewards. And if we invest our lives and our resources in the kingdom, in the end we will have rich, full, satisfying lives that bring us joy today and eternal prosperity if we squander our time and effort in worry and frustration and the accumulation of wealth, we will end our lives on a very, very sad note. I don't want to come to the end and look back and say, I wasted all my time. I want to look back on people that I have touched and missions that I have invested in and ways that I have given myself to the kingdom, putting God first. That's how I want to run. I, I don't always get it right, but that's how I want to run so as to win that prize. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. I, I pray that you would give us the grace to take it to heart. That we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need this countercultural uh, message to to hit us in the face and redirect our steps. We need to be challenged from the common way of thinking to your way of thinking, so that we may prove your will, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so I pray, Father, that you would take this message and plant it deeply in our hearts, that it would spring up and bear fruit, and we would be kingdom people that are investing in the kingdom. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.